morning we're reading from Proverbs 19, 9 to 26. A false witness will not go unpunished, and a liar will be destroyed. It isn't right for a fool to live in luxury or for a slave to rule over princes. People with good sense restrain their anger. They earn esteem by overlooking wrongs. The king's anger is like a lion's roar, but his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish child is a calamity to a father. A nagging wife annoys like a constant dripping. Parents can provide their sons with an inheritance of houses and wealth, but only the Lord can give an understanding wife. A lazy person sleeps soundly and goes hungry. Keep the commandments and keep your life. Despising them leads to death. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. Discipline your children while there is hope. If you don't, you will ruin their lives. Short-tempered people must pay their own penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. Get all the advice and instruction you can and be wise the rest of your life. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Loyalty makes a person attractive, and it is better to be poor than dishonest. Fear of the Lord gives life, security, and protection from harm. Some people are so lazy that they won't even lift a finger to feed themselves. If you punish a mocker, the simple-minded will learn a lesson. And if you reprove the wise, they will be all the wiser. Children who mistreat their father or chase away their mother are a public disgrace and an, and an embarrassment. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Charmaine. Good morning, everybody. Charmaine and Glenn uh, Chickling have uh, moved from California, I think, back to this warm Edmonton area here. Good to have you, uh, part of our congregation, Glenn and Charmaine and, uh, and your family. Well, we're in a series of messages call, uh, called uh, New Year's Wisdom from Proverbs. And uh, we've been blessed to have people right from our own congregation speak to us every Sunday morning. Uh, Sid Page... Robert Sanford, uh, last week was Pastor Norb, and this morning is uh, Corey Anderson. What a great passage, just as we heard it read for us this morning, what a great passage. Corey is the chair of our elder team, and uh, let's just pray for him as he comes uh, this morning. So, Corey, come. Lord, we just thank you for Corey, and we pray your blessing upon him this morning as he opens your word. Uh, thank you for his heart and his testimony. Bless him this morning as he shares in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Pastor Ken. Um, some of you who know me know that I'm an absolute news junkie, right? I could sit and watch the news constantly. And so for the last several months, really since August, I, I would suggest, um, it's, it's been really easy to stay glued to CNN or to whomever. But this last week has truly, truly been a historic week. Now, whatever side of the aisle you sit on, we have watched a very unique person installed as President of the United States. And, and after he was installed, we saw a number of protests erupt, not just in the United States, but from one corner of the world to the other. Now, everybody has a strong opinion about Donald Trump. Some see him as a strong leader, and others talk about him as weak and insecure. Some see him as a uniter. 
others as a divider. Now, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, there is one thing that we can all agree on, and that's the next four years are going to be interesting. Now, maybe it's going to be because of this week's events that this is not going to be difficult to imagine. But for a moment, I want to just take a, a, a second, and I want you to imagine that one of the wealthiest men in the world has been asked to lead one of the most powerful governments in the world. Now, this particular individual is well known for having a less than ideal uh, record as a husband. He's a bit of a womanizer. He's brash. He's opinionated. And he's not afraid to call out those whom he disagrees with. Now, this particular leader that I'm speaking about routinely shares his, his opinions with memorable quips that are generally no longer than 140 characters in length. Now, every time one of these short statements is released, people from all over the nation stop and read them because they provide significant insight into the opinions and views of their leadership. Now, I am not talking about memorable quips, such as BuzzFeed is a pile of burning garbage. Believe it or not, Donald Trump is not entirely unique to the history of humanity. And although there are lots of differences between these two men, King Solomon was an outspoken, wealthy leader who built a giant temple adorned with gold. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he tended to speak his mind in short, brief, little statements or quips that we call proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a compilation of his short and memorable statements that are designed to challenge his critics and they're intended to impress upon his beliefs to the nation. When Solomon spoke, people listened. Now these words are not just nice sayings. They're, they're vital to understanding God's expectations. And so this morning, I want us to look at how Solomon sees God's vision for our families. And as we do, I think we're going to discover that God has got an intent that he's going to use families to shape and to draw out godly characteristics from one generation into the next and into the next. It's, it's an inheritance. Now, a number of years ago, I had asked my parents to watch the kids while Beth and I were going out somewhere. I, I don't remember where we were going. It doesn't really matter. But before I left, I was going over bedtime routine with, with my dad. And I happened to mention that the kids really like it when you put them to bed and read a story. And then I said, you know, if you want to see something really funny and get Micah very angry, read him the copyright information in the front of the book because he just loses his temper every time you do it. Now, my dad shocked me in that moment because he paused and he looked at me and he said, I know. I know because when you were three years old, I used to read you the copyright information in the front of the book and you would get so mad. Now, what I discovered in that moment is that our children, our kids, they imitate our humor. 
They imitate our behaviors, our nuances, our mannerisms, and even the smallest parts of our body language. When I look at my, my siblings, I realize that as much as I'm different from them, there are enough similarities in our mannerisms for me to recognize that when I look at my children, I'm also looking at a very long family history. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, we read, And he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Think about this for just a moment. My dad, his name is Murray, he was born in 1944. His father, James, was born in 1912. My great-grandfather, Hans Christian, was born in 1880. And my great great-grandfather, Anders Anderson, was born in 1853. That's four generations. According to Exodus chapter 34, the behaviors of my great-great-grandfather, Anders Anderson, and the mistakes that he made in the 1850s will have a profound impact on my life 164 years later. In some way, my relationship to my wife will be affected by the way that Anders treated his wife on. And the way that I treat my children is affected by his parenting skills. Our behaviors, attitudes, and personality is passed from parent to child throughout the generation. And so the choices that I'm making now in 2017 will affect not only my children, but my children's children and their children. And the choices that I make, whether they're good or bad, will be reflected in my family in the year 2180. 2180. The choices that I make will still be reflected. I cannot kid myself into believing that my actions don't matter. In Exodus 34 we are told that I might be able to minimize. We might find a way to minimize or even believe altogether that we've ducked the consequences of our actions. But my children, grandchildren, and my great-great-grandchildren will inherit those consequences. But you know what? I don't just pass on the negative. That's the good news. I also have the privilege of passing down good characteristics to my children. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, it says, The godly walk with integrity. Blessed are the children who follow them. See, God created a system where behaviors are passed through the generations, and he calls it a blessing. It's not a curse. He calls it a blessing. He made our children with the capacity to observe and to learn at a pace that will never be duplicated at any other point in their life. God 
has entrusted us as parents to teach our children our values, our priorities, and work ethic. And by considering family as an inheritance passed from generation to generation, I recognize that my values will not die when I do. My children's ability to observe my behavior can indeed be a curse, but it can also be a great blessing to my children. Now Solomon is confronted by the notion that his influence will indeed span well beyond his own life. And therefore, he needs to actively consider the message that's being passed down to his children. So in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1, he's talking to his son and he says, Follow my advice. Always treasure my commands. Obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. Tie them on your fingers as a reminder and write them deep within your heart. Parents, we take this responsibility seriously and we consider what we want our children to inherit from us. In my own life, when I was three years old, my dad would giggle as I got angry when he read the copyright. Do I have any memory of this? No, not one. Yet at the same time, his humor is stamped deep within my psyche. And I know that because I did the same thing with my kids. You know, there are layers to every action. And there are layers to every word we speak. Unfortunately, most of us will naturally live our lives at at the surface of our experiences. And unless we're truly searching... I'm never going to understand how my grandparents' insecurities, hurts, and betrayals were passed down to my parents and ultimately into my own life. I, I have to trust that God is using my family to challenge and to shape me into his image and into his likeness. He passes consequences and blessing from generation to generation, not because he is a sadistic ruler that can't let things go, but because he is intent on fully resolving an issue and to heal us completely from the choices of our families and to make my descendants more godly than I am. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, Solomon says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. The word purposes can also be translated as motives. And deep waters refer to the mystery or some type of profound uncertainty. See, in the ancient world, the deep waters were well beyond the reach uh, of most people, and so they were seen as a mystery. And uh, sometimes a ship would disappear into their depths, And every now and then, some strange fish or creature would emerge. But it was a mystery because they couldn't get down and they couldn't see what was at the depths of the ocean. And Solomon tells us here that the motives and what's going on in our hearts are just that deep. We can't understand it because it's so mysterious. It's so complicated and it becomes out of reach. And so sometimes it's just easier to stop thinking about our motives behind our behavior and to never actually deal with what's going on. Solomon tells us that the fool 
is content to leave it there. That the wise person is not simply satisfied to accept that they made a mistake. No, they, they want to understand the reasons behind their decisions and behaviors as to avoid repeating these mistakes. I want to pass on a blessing to my children and ultimately my great-grandchildren. I need to stop and reflect on what God is trying to do in my life today. In Proverbs 19, verse 14, we read, Fathers can give their sons an inheritance of houses and wealth, but only the Lord can give an understanding wife. Hmm. Specifically here, Solomon is trying to tie the idea of an inheritance with a wise or an understanding wife. That's clear. But in the same way, an inheritance is a gift that I didn't deserve. I didn't earn it. And he says, that same thing is true of a good wife. And so in describing an understanding wife or a good wife as an inheritance, it's a gift from God. Solomon is telling me that my wife's character, for better or worse, is really beyond my control. See, God began shaping her long before I met her. And he alone is going to be responsible to make her into the person he wants her to become. And yet, he has put those pieces together in such a way that she becomes a building block in my life and I become a building block in hers. Proverbs 18.22 echoes this when Solomon writes, A man who finds a wife finds a treasure, and he receives favor from the Lord. I want you to note he's missing a word. Or he seems to be missing a word. He doesn't say a man who finds a good wife finds a treasure. And it's actually intentional that Solomon omits the word good from this sentence because he's assuming that marriage in itself is a gift from God and therefore it's a good thing. A marriage may struggle and it may be hurtful and it may even fail. But that doesn't mean that God couldn't or did not use it for my growth and towards my benefit. Now, he links the words find and receive here, and it's important to note that, that connection. The word find implies a search. It's a treasure hunt. It's something that I worked towards. It's implying that effort and energy went into this process. I've earned it. Regardless of whether or not I'm satisfied in my marriage, God looks at it and says, you know what? It's a treasure. Consider it that way. And yet the word receive is a contrast. It implies a gift that was freely given. I didn't earn it. I didn't have to work for it. I received it as a gift from God. Here we have a paradox in that I have to work hard for the treasure but there's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it or make it any better than what it is. I can't experience the fullness of this treasure without my own effort. Without that search, I can't receive it. Or perhaps I miss the gift that God gives me when I look at my wife. Now, in the apocryphal book, so it's not from our Bible, it's from the apocryphal book of Sirach chapter 26, it seems to build on this concept 
of, of, or the, the context of God's blessing through marriage when he writes, Happy is the husband of a good wife. The number of his days will be doubled. A loyal wife brings joy to her husband, and he will complete his years in peace. A good wife is a great blessing. She will be granted among the blessings of the man who fears the Lord. Whether rich or poor, his heart is content, and all times his faith, his face is cheerful. Now, Sirach, he's not, he's not in the Bible, but he says that the secret to a good marriage is a husband who fears the Lord. This is the foundation on which everything is built. A husband who fears the Lord. And a good marriage is just as much about God's involvement in the relationship as what it is, in fact, is more than God's involvement is more than what my effort could ever produce. Sirach says that a happy marriage will bring a longer life. Specifically, he says, their days will be doubled. They will find peace and contentment in riches and in poverty. It starts to sound like a, a wedding vow there, doesn't it? You know, the book of Proverbs is filled with contrasting views. It's filled with contrasting ideas and perspective. He shows us the good and the bad, how to build something great and how to destroy it. And so in Proverbs 19.13, Solomon contrasts now a good marriage with a bad one when he writes, A foolish child is a calamity to a father. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant dripping. Now, for a moment, I want you to picture you taking your family camping. And um, perhaps you're asleep in the tent and you're cuddled up in your nice warm sleeping bag. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning and you start to hear the pitter-patter of rain on your tent. And before long, it's absolutely pouring on top of you. Sometime around 2.15 in the morning, you discovered that your tent has a leak right over your head. Drip, drip, drip. You're trying to sleep, but your head is getting wet. And so you move your sleeping bag to another part of the tent. And now you have a puddle on the floor, and your sleeping bag is cold and wet, and you don't want to be there anymore. It's a constant. You want it to stop. But there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. It just won't go away. Now, Solomon is contrasting a marriage rooted in a godly inheritance with one that is filled with quarreling and bickering by saying there is nothing more annoying than a family that is marked with conflict. He repeats himself in Proverbs 21 verse 9 when he says, It is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. And then again in Proverbs, I should say twenty-one nineteen, it is better to live alone in a desert than with a quarrelsome complaining wife. Now, quarrelsome wife is constantly picking at the husband and is criticizing and finding reasons to criticize. Poke, poke, poke. Much like that leaky tent, it doesn't stop. Now, Solomon says, I want nothing more than to run away from this. Now, men, I want you to hear this. This 
isn't just speaking to our wives, okay? But we are not off the hook because Solomon warns men about our hot temper. For example, in Proverbs 19.19, we read, hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you'll have to do it again. 15.18, a hot-tempered person starts a fight. A cool-tempered person stops them. In 29.11, fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. The message about controlling one's temper, the message about quarreling and bickering is, is clearly directed to both men and women. Here he's specifically identifying the women, but it's, it's directed at both. Now, family therapist John Gottman compla- uh, claims that after only 20 minutes of talking to a couple, he can predict whether or not there will be marital satisfaction or even whether or not a marriage will potentially end in divorce. What he found was a few patterns that he commonly calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he says, if these patterns are not quickly corrected, the marriage will eventually fail. So the four horsemen include, first of all, defensiveness. And defensiveness takes the position of a victim. It constantly protests innocence, and it shifts the blame to somebody else. It might say, do you know, it's not my fault that the dishes are everywhere. I put my plate in the dishwasher. Did you put your plate in the dishwasher? Rather than accepting responsibility for one's actions, the defensive posture is to turn the tables and to blame somebody else. The key here is one of, I'm not accepting blame. I'm going to pass that blame on to you and see myself as a victim. Now, contempt sees oneself as superior. When there's contempt, we're disrespectful. We're mocking with sarcasm, ridiculing, and name-calling. And sometimes we use our body language to shame our, our children or perhaps our spouse into a specific behavior. The theme of contempt is, I'm better than you. Contempt grows because we focus on the negative of our spouse, or we focus on the negative things that our children are doing. And and when we focus on that so much, we're no longer capable of seeing the positive. Now, criticism is more than just the occasional complaint about our spouse or about somebody in general. It says, I'm taking the problem and I'm now putting it into your body. Perhaps certain behaviors are repeated over and over, and so we look at that person and say, you know what, there is something wrong with you. For example, I'm tired of looking at the dirty dishes stacking up in the bathtub. And rather than looking at the dishes and asking for help, I assume that the dishes are in the bathtub because you're lazy. Criticism does not see the dishes as the problem. It sees somebody else as the problem. Perhaps our kids, perhaps our our spouse, whomever. But again, this is not offering a complaint about the dishes not being done. It's focused on character. Gottman took his study down to genders. He discovered that this horseman is most likely going to be, not in all cases, 
but in most cases, it's more likely to be a horsewoman. Now, when someone, men, when someone in a relationship stonewalls, they're withdrawing from conversation. Conflict escalates. The blood pressure begins to boil, and our spouse shuts down. The blood is boiling. They fear losing control, and so they take evasive maneuvers, such as acting busy, working longer hours, engaging in addictive behaviors such as gambling or pornography. But the goal is to create an alternate, less stressful reality in order to calm the heart rate, even if it's just for a moment. Essentially, this person creates a reality that, it, that feels in that moment to be emotionally safer than their current circumstance. And they hope that their spouse will come to see their point of view without having to have a fight or an argument. Unfortunately, when somebody is stonewalling, their spouse doesn't read their blood pressure. They don't understand that the conflict is actually escalating. They look at their spouse as ignoring them. You're not listening to what I have to say. You're ignoring me. 80%. 80% of stonewallers are men. So when Solomon says it is better to live alone on the corner of an attic or in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home, he's actually giving us a unique insight into his own dysfunctional conflict management strategies. Men, when he says it's better to, he appears to be praising stonewalling techniques. He believes that he's found a way to avoid fighting with his wife or maybe 700 of his wives. But both spouses here are actually adding to the problem. The quarrelsome critical wife believes there's something wrong with her husband. The husband who stonewalls is only making an alternate reality. And they hide from their spouse. They feed off of each other. The criticizer believes that their stonewalling spouse is ignoring them. And they see a stone wall and they feel they have to knock it down. And so how do they respond? They push harder. They get louder. Now, if you are a stonewaller and you happen to be married to a criticizer, you need to understand that your conflict strategy is just adding to the criticism. Your spouse is wondering why you're ignoring them. Now, I once had a friend. He was was the criticizer, and his wife was the stonewaller, so they were backwards to what Gottman would call the norm. But he said, he made the comment to me one day, he said, bad communication is better than no communication. His wife was angry, And so she stonewalled. And the more she stonewalled, the harder my friend pushed. And he never quite understood why she kept building a bigger and taller wall. If you're a criticizer who's married to a stonewaller, the harder you push, the less likely they are to respond. Why? Because they're trying to create an alternate reality where they're not only acceptable but desirable. And the criticizer is looking and going, What is wrong with you? 
right? They're not dealing with the problems, they're dealing with the person. And the insecurity is reinforced in the stonewaller's mind. And because they see conflict as stress, they build a bigger wall, and you're stuck with the bill. Now, I've often referred to something that I call a marriage contract. Now, a marriage contract is the unwritten, unspoken expectations that we bring into our marriage. In, in reality, the marriage contract shows up in every relationship that we have. But I'm, I'm going to focus on marriage. And as these expectations remain unwritten and unspoken, nobody knows what they are until they've been broken. Now, because we perceive life differently than our spouse, we will have different expectations as to how we handle the day-to-day activities and how we respond to stress. I want us to look at a short video about two people who are actually trying to respect each other's marriage contract. And as we watch this very short video clip, I want you to watch the video and ask yourself, what does the spouse actually need from each other? So let's just, if you can just put that up there. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless, and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail out. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. If you would just... Don't! Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? Okay, what... What's, what is her contract, right? It's very clear. Her contract in this video is for him to just listen and provide some type of empathetic feedback. She doesn't want to be fixed. She just wants to be heard. What's his contract? Well, he sees himself as a caretaker, and it's his job to make sure she doesn't have a nail in her head. Now, our contract will evolve to our circumstances. And so at no point can I proactively sit down with my wife and write out the marriage contract and sign it with her. It changes and it adapts as we go through life. For example, when I first got married, I may not have understood how important my wife's parents are to her. It's it's not until her parents begin to age and become more dependent on her that I can begin to see how this changing stress affects their relationship. And this stress surfaces a new set of expectations because as their relationship changes, 
her priorities and values are now being stretched. Her marriage contract is expressing itself in new ways. As such, when we experience life with our spouse, we learn about their values and their priorities by how they react to changing life circumstances. Now, another scenario. Perhaps in a marriage, you have two people planning a vacation together. One is a planner who likes to have every day mapped out with clear detail, whereas the other is more spontaneous. Perhaps the planner relaxes by keeping busy and visiting historical sites, whereas the spontaneous spouse would prefer to just sit and relax in front of a campfire. Is one of these scenarios better than the other? No, they're just different marriage contracts or different expectations about how the family should relax. If the differences are not understood, no one in the family will have the ability to have a relaxing vacation. Now, let's take this a step further. Perhaps these same two people have different marriage contracts regarding financial risk. Maybe one partner is, is very entrepreneurial and is comfortable in taking financial risks, whereas the other spouse would prefer stability and to put their money in a safe investment. Again, is one strategy better than the other? I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. But you can probably debate both sides of this discussion. But when this contract is violated, it can very quickly lead to contempt. And spouses begin to look down on each other. Ultimately, there are two people who are financially tied together, managing their money differently, and they begin working or pulling against each other. Now, Proverbs 19.25 tells us that if you punish a mocker, the simple-minded will learn a lesson. If you correct the wise, they will be all the wiser. You know, you can actually train your spouse to put the dishes in the sink. But if we focus on their shortcomings and we focus on what is wrong with you, they will ultimately become resentful. And we're going to start to see the horsemen of the apocalypse show up. In contrast, the wise person is always learning. They, they want to grow and understand that they can build into the lives of their family. I believe that God designed stress and conflict to surface our unwritten and unspoken expectations. And the more we are aware of our contracts within our marriage, the greater our ability to support our spouse. God works through our family in order to draw out his character. He doesn't shape us in a vacuum, but in relationship. He uses the stress. He uses the insecurity and the conflicts to surface this, to deal with it. This is the inheritance or the treasure that he promises. Our family becomes the instrument that God uses to heal my past and to make me more like him. In Proverbs 19.11 Solomon writes, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. In Proverbs 15:18, it says, a hot-tempered person starts a fight. 
a cool-tempered person stops them. A sharp fuse is symbolic of somebody who's easily distracted and reacts without understanding. Solomon wants us to know that someone with a long fuse is likely to be much more understanding and aware of the needs of their family. They see the treasure God has given, and they enjoy the benefit of generations of influence coming together in order to provide perspective, compassion, and understanding. And rather than reacting to the moment, they reflect beneath the surface to establish what our spouse needs from us. They look beneath the surface to understand what is it that our children need from us. A cool temper allows us to take the time to stop and to process our experience. Now, it's not that we're never going to have disagreement or conflict or fights within the home. But when we do, we learn about our own and our spouse's experiences and expectations of us. God's intent that my family, that your family, will be instrumental in drawing out his character and his purpose for you, for me. It's a partnership. Proverbs 19.23 says, Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. When God is at the center of our family, he uses our history uses our experiences to strengthen our kids. He takes our histories and he blends them together with our spouse in order to build into the next generation. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I want to I thank you for the wonderful gift that you give us as family. And, and God, you give us these gifts with the intent... That, uh, that you would use them to build from the next generation. And I pray, God, that as I look at my own life and as we look at our own experiences, that, that we wouldn't just be satisfied to leave them at the surface, but that we'd be intent on looking and going, how do I come in and give a blessing to that next generation so that in 167 years, 167 years, the, the legacy that I leave not a curse, but it's a blessing. Father, this happens when we partner with you. When we put you at the center and at the core of who we are in, in our world and in our relationships. And so today we just rely on you and ask for your, your blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen.